Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of the Study with C. Martin podcast. I'm your host, Shonda Martin. If you are joining us for the first time today, the Study with C. Martin podcast is the audio companion to my study, Bible study textbook, workbook, and free online Bible study course. Now to register for the free course and access the materials, visit us online at studywithcmartin.com. Before we get started today, we're going to pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, God, I give you praise. I give you glory. I give you honor. I thank you for this study time today in your word. I pray, Father, that you would continue to fill us all with the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that the eyes of our understanding continually be enlightened, that we know what is the hope of your calling, that we know what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints of light, and that we all know, see, demonstrate, and experience the exceeding greatness of your power, which is at work in us, to us, and for us who believe your word. Continue to have your way in this place, have your way in this podcast. Continue to have your way in the lives of those that you have drawn to hear your word through this podcast today, Lord. God, I thank you for your favor that surrounds this place and this platform, Lord. And I just give you glory, God. I thank you for your power that just emanates through your word and causes every good thing that we've prayed for to come to pass and be revealed for all to see. I thank you for the healing testimonies that come forth, Father, the restoration testimonies, Lord, that come forth as a result of people hearing and believing your word and applying your word correctly, Lord. In Jesus' name, God. Amen. All right, so today we are picking up in chapter 12. If you have not already listened to the previous podcast episodes covering the earlier chapters, I ask that you come off of this episode, listen to the previous episodes, and then come back to this one once you're caught up to speed. We've covered an immense amount of material up to this point, and for you to just dive in at this point, you might be a little bit lost because we've covered a lot. So, As I said, we are starting in, let's see, the second part of chapter 12. We are picking up on page 440. Now in this segment, this is going to be a little bit of a double segment because we're going to do a deep dive in talking about an area that causes a lot of people to be hindered. And that has to do with other people where people have wronged you and there have been hurt feelings and you're harboring unforgiveness in your heart. And it makes it hard for you to not only move on relationship wise, but it just hinders your ability to pray effectively when you're holding on to these hurts or wrongs that people have done against you. So in today's podcast episode, we're going to do a deep dive into talking about forgiveness, unforgiveness, and those kinds of things that can hinder our prayers. We're going to go over more pages than we typically do. We typically do no more than about 20 or 25 pages in an episode, but we're going to cover 40 pages in today's episode. And that's because it's necessary to cover all of these things together. So this episode is a little bit longer than usual, but it's necessary. We're going to get into what the word of God says, how we're supposed to deal with these situations so that we're not holding on to hurts anymore and that our prayers are not hindered. And we'll learn how we're actually supposed to pray for people so that they don't hinder themselves by saying or doing wrong actions against people anymore. Okay. So as I said before, we are picking up on page 440 in the section entitled, Don't Be Ignorant, Lying Vanities Give Place to Doubt and Unbelief. In the parable of the sower in Luke chapter four, Jesus said that the sower sows the word. Then Satan comes immediately to steal the word that you have believed. Now, how does he do that? With lying vanities. Jonah chapter two, verse eight says, 
They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. When you choose to believe and obey the word of God, Satan tries to distract you with lying vanities. And what are lying vanities? Symptoms, situations, and even unscriptural teachings that come to contradict the word of God and undermine your faith. He tries to deceive you with false teachings or intensify symptoms and situations concerning the thing that you actually did pray for, as well as distracting you in areas that are totally unrelated to the things that you prayed for. And why would he do that? To steal the word that you have believed, to frustrate you, to make you doubt, and to cause you to stop having faith in the word of God. And so what does that look like? Well, after hearing and believing the word of God about healing, you start watching a mixed message series from a popular minister on TV that tells you that sometimes God doesn't heal everybody. Then you spend the next two months not quite sure if it's really God's will for you to really be healed. You finally get back on track believing for healing, but then your car breaks down and your children start misbehaving. You pray for a new job, then every conversation you have with your spouse ends with an argument or unexpected bills show up out of nowhere. You pray for God to open doors for you to preach the gospel. Then your family members begin spreading malicious gossip about you. You start believing the word of God for a new house. Then your friends, family, and even church family go out of their way to express unbelief, even encouraging you on a daily basis not to get your hopes up about that Bible stuff. Now, why does the devil spend time doing those things? He knows that your faith really is working but he tries to get you to observe or to focus on, pay attention to, or be consumed by lying vanities, frustrating you to believe and speak that the word of God is not true so that instead of having what God said, you can have the harm, detriment, lack, and loss that the devil wants you to have. Always remember, whenever you start believing and speaking the word of God, the spirit and power of God immediately goes to work on your behalf to produce what you have believed and spoken. Whether or not you or anybody else can see any immediate change in your situation. And again, that's something that we have to remember because a lot of times we can focus on, okay, well, I just prayed and five minutes later, I'm checking to see if I can see any difference. And if I don't see any difference, now I'm thinking, oh, my prayers must not have worked. And that's the thing. You don't hang your hat on what you can immediately see or feel. You hang your hat on what the word of God actually says. If the word of God says all you had to do was believe and speak, then trust that, know that, believe that. But when you let yourself get distracted by and focus on lying vanities, you end up questioning whether or not his word can help you at all. You end up saying things like, why is this so hard? Didn't God hear my prayers? If things like these happened, even though I prayed, what's the point of praying and believing? I know the word of God says that God doesn't send harm to teach me anything, but that popular minister on TV said that God wouldn't permit these things to come if I couldn't handle them. Now I don't know what to believe. Have you ever found yourself in situations like that before where you start believing the word of God and then you start watching a minister here or go to a church there and and listen to somebody preach or teach about a particular subject and they interject personal thoughts or cliches that completely contradict the word that you have believed. A few years back, I was listening to different ministers to try to bolster my faith for healing. And I came across this one minister that was highly recommended by another minister. They had some videos on social media. And so 
And listening to this particular minister who came highly recommended, they said something that kind of knocked me off course. They said something that contradicted what the word of God said. And instead of me holding fast to what the word of God said, I started wrestling with what they were saying because they were the popular minister and they came highly recommended by this other minister. So I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe my understanding of what the word says is wrong because this minister over here says, well, you know, maybe I can't have this or that. Where I had been sure that God would heal me or do what I was believing for at that time, I spent the next six months wrestling with believing God because of what that minister said. And that's an example of observing a lying vanity. What they were saying was not true. It was scripturally incorrect, but based off of who they happened to be and being that they were highly recommended by somebody else, I gave credence to what they were saying. And we can find ourselves doing that from time to time when we let other people's words have more weight than what the word of God says. And I believe it's Romans 3, 4 that says, let God be true and every man a liar. If what the person is saying does not line up with what the word of God says, I don't care who they are. Don't follow after what they're saying, because in the end, if you're following them and they're not following what God said, then you're not going to have what God said. You'll only end up with their cliches, thoughts, and opinions. You understand that? Again, you have to remember what you've learned thus far. James 4, 7 says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Matthew 16, 19 and Matthew 18, 18 says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You understand and believe what the Bible says about healing now. When any ache or pain tries to come against your body, you no longer accept those things and you know how to use the word of God to resist them in the name of Jesus. Likewise, when unscriptural teachings try to confuse you, or discontent, distress, or dysfunction, or any other ungodly symptom tries to come against any area of your life, use the word of God to actively resist those things too. Far too often, we entertain lying vanities when they come and get lost wrestling with doubt and unbelief and end up giving up on the good that we prayed for. Again, that's what happened with me. I was wrestling with that stuff for six months. Paying attention to and getting distracted by lying vanities causes you to believe the lie and accept the devil's consolation prize. After believing and praying for a long time for healing, a new home, a new car, a new job, or restoration in a relationship, or even help with a situation, and there seems to be no change, you look at those lying vanities and decide, believing and speaking really must be too good to be true. This is all just too hard and I'm ready for things to be changed. I'm ready for things to be changed now. I can't do this faith stuff anymore, at least not for now. I don't feel like keeping my hopes up for the impossible anymore. Right now, I'm just going to do what I can for myself. And if God ever decides to do something later, I guess we'll see that when it happens. But what does the word of God remind us to do? Do not, therefore, fling away your fearless confidence, for it carries a great and glorious compensation of reward. And we see that in Hebrews 10, 35. That's saying, hold fast to the confession of your faith. Hold fast to what the word of God says. Luke 1, 45 says, blessed is she who has believed the word of God and continues to believe that the Lord would fulfill his promises. We must believe and understand and remember that as painful as they might be, 
Lying vanities are lies. They are not the truth. Whether that be some contradictory message that somebody preached or even a symptom of distress in your body or a symptom of dysfunction in relationships with other people. Those are lying vanities. God has promised us peace in every area of our lives. So when dysfunctions try to flare up in relationships, that's a lie from the enemy. That's not your marriage. That's not your relationship with your child to have dysfunction. Oh, no, no, no. That's smoke and mirrors by the enemy. No, that's not your body. That ache or pain, that doesn't belong to you. That's smoke and mirrors from the enemy. The word of God is just as true concerning the things that you prayed for, just as it is for every other area in your life. When the devil tries to stir up lying vanities, you have to stop and remind yourself of what the word of God really says and that you still believe that you received what you prayed for. Lying vanities only come to undermine, weaken, and steal your faith. Again, if you let yourself get distracted by the appearance of lying vanities, you'll throw up your hands and give up on or forsake the mercy or right to healing and help that you have because of Jesus. Regardless of what unscriptural teachings you might have come across this week, regardless of what your body looks like or feels like this week, what your marriage looks like this week, how your kids are behaving next week, or what bill claims to be paid or unpaid, or what people say about you any day of the week, and whether or not anyone else believes the word of God with you, do not accept those lying vanities. Resist them with the word of God. Remain confident and hold on to what you prayed for believing that there will be a fulfillment of what God promised in his word. And again, lying vanities, they're not just aches and pains that you feel in your body trying to tell you that you're sick when you know that you're healed. It's not just dysfunctions in relationships. It's not just, oh, your car randomly broke down or you had any other kind of dysfunction. It's all of those things. You could be praying for healing, but then all of a sudden you have disagreement with your spouse. You could be praying for a new job, then all of a sudden you have dysfunction with your children. See, the lying vanity doesn't just pop up in the same area that you're praying for. A lot of times you can think about it like, okay, if you're praying for healing, if you had a knee issue, all of a sudden your knee is hurting worse. Now, lying vanities are not just restricted to that area that you've been praying for. Lying vanities can pop up in the area that you've already been praying for, as well as areas that are completely unrelated to what you've been praying for. So just be mindful of that. And just remember, again, that the word of God is just as true concerning those lying vanities and those other areas as it is for the stuff that you've been praying for. So if you've been praying for a new house and a lying vanity pops up in a relationship issue, now use what you know about the word of God concerning that relationship and start speaking in there. The word of God isn't just true for your healing. It's also true for that relationship. It's also true for your finances. It's also true for that housing situation. It's true for everything. So even if lying vanities do try to pop up in those other areas, just know and remember that the word of God is just as true concerning those things as it is for the other things that you've prayed for. And don't be weakened in your faith if something tries to pop up in another area. You keep setting your alarm. You keep enforcing the word of God. By believing and speaking, anytime something tries to pop up, the Bible says that in James 4, 7, we are to submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. You keep resisting the devil, he will flee. Don't be ignorant and permit roots of bitterness to spring up. When we pray, we are supposed to judge every person, situation, and condition in righteousness. And we see that in Psalm 82. 
meaning that we are to judge all things in light of the word of God, believing and speaking that no person or situation is beyond his help and that we absolutely do have every good thing that the word of God says that we have, in spite of what things look like, how we feel, or how others are behaving toward us. However, far too often, we judge the word of God in the dark shadows of our situations and the unscriptural traditions, cliches, or teachings that we have believed. We question, well, what did God really do? I mean, we prayed, but what did God really do? Did his word really do anything? I guess he really doesn't heal or help anybody like he used to do in the Bible days, because as far as I can tell, they're still acting that way, or I still look or feel this way. How could God let people treat me this way? How could he let situations like this continue? But what does the Bible tell us in Hebrews 12 verses 12 to 16? Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame, whatever part that is out of order, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. He's saying, apply the word of God so whatever is dysfunctional can be functional, will be put back in order. Don't not believe the word of God. Don't stop believing and speaking the word of God and let that situation remain dysfunctional. No, keep believing and speaking the word of God so his power can bring restoration to your life. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short or falls away from the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes anyone to be defiled. And in that sentence there where it says defiled, it's talking about you're tainted where you're no longer able to freely receive what God provides. And what is causing that defilement? Roots of bitterness. And how do roots of bitterness come? Roots of bitterness come from hurt feelings, either from situations with people or you were hurt because your prayers didn't get answered like you wanted to and you develop some bitterness in your heart. When we take our eyes off of his word, and focus on the devil's lies and symptoms of sickness, pain, dysfunction, distress, and harm, we take our eyes off of the fact that Jesus really did finish it all. Instead of becoming stronger by speaking words of faith, we become weaker, confessing that God must not have helped us or must not have hurt us, and that there has not been any change, and that the situation is just as bad as ever. When we embrace those lies, we defile ourselves with with unbelief, and let roots of bitterness spring up, causing us to be separated from the grace of God as if we were the tainted lepers during the Old Testament times, unworthy and unable to receive anything from God. You remember how lepers were in the Old Testament times. They could not come inside the camp. They had to be outside of the camp. They were separated from the power of God. They were separated from the rest of the people. And just like those lepers, Holding on to bitterness causes us to separate ourselves from God and from people, causing us to stop believing, stop praying, and to give up on what we prayed for, causing us to sever relationships, and even to walk away from anything that has anything to do with God. Have any of you ever been hurt in relationships or let down because you prayed and it didn't seem like God answered your prayers, so you just shut down and just turned away from believing God? You turned away from distance yourself from people and didn't let anybody get close to you anymore. It's like you isolated yourself and you became like one of the lepers. You're sitting outside of the camp. But when we let bitterness take over our hearts like that, we separate ourselves from the power of God. 
Who's glorified when we do that? It's not God. It's the devil. He's the only one benefiting from that. Roots of bitterness are deep emotional and spiritual hurts that spring up to make you bitter towards God and they keep you from having any of the good that Jesus died for us to have. We saw this example time and again with God's people during Old Testament times. When faced with impossible situations, they took their eyes off of believing what God said and they became bitter about what he promised. They entertained thoughts that said, this is impossible. God must have brought us out here to kill us. There's no way that we can really have what he promised. We saw that in Exodus chapter 14, verses 12 and 13, Numbers chapter 14, verse 3, and also Numbers chapter 21, verse 5, and Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. And what does the Bible tell us to learn from their example? Hebrews 4.11 says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest of God, to know and experience it for ourselves, so that no one will fall by following the same example of disobedience and unbelief, as those who died in the wilderness. Those who were in the wilderness, the Israelites that came out of Egypt, they looked at what God promised and they couldn't understand, they couldn't fathom how they could bring it about themselves. And God never asked them to bring about the change themselves. He just told them to believe him for it. When they went to go and spy out the promised land, they looked and they were like, man, this is impossible. God has just set us up to fail. Now you think about that as it pertains to your relationship or your healing. That healing looks impossible. You don't know anybody else has been healed of whatever it is that you've been dealing with. You don't know anybody that's made a full recovery from what you've been dealing with. You don't know anybody's marriage who's been restored from whatever situation you your marriage was facing. You don't know anybody whose child was turned around after seeing your child have the issues that they've had. This is just impossible. Why would God put me in this situation? We have to not look at the lying vanity. Let's backtrack for a minute. Where does the term lying vanity come from? It came from Jonah chapter two, verse eight. In the book of Jonah, Jonah disobeyed God and found himself in a, in a terrible situation. He had been swallowed by a whale. Inside of the belly of that whale, Jonah said, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Jonah could have continually confessed, well, I guess God has forsaken me and he's forgot all about me or I deserve what I get and I'm just going to die here in this whale. He continued to focus on the goodness of God and he continued to, to focus on if anybody could save him, it would be God. When you continue to focus on what your situation looks like, when you continue to focus on the inside of the well that you might be in right now, the inside of the well that your marriage might be in right now, when you focus on that, that's what you're going to have. Shut your eyes to the inside of that well and see the power of God being at work on your behalf in that relationship, in that financial situation, with your children, with your spouse, in your healing. Was Jonah really in a fish? Yes. Could he have died there? Yes. The aches and pains that have come against your body, are they real? Yes. But they are not the truth. The dysfunctions that sprang up in your relationships, was there a real disagreement with that person? Yes. Were there real hurtful words that were said? 
or hurtful actions that were done? Yes, but that's not the truth. The truth is God commanded peace for those relationships. And if God commanded peace for those relationships, then that's what's going to be. But if we continue to focus on the dysfunction that the devil has tried to present there, then that's what's going to be and remain. Roots of bitterness can only be planted and grow when we continually look at the present problem and past hurts instead of continually looking to what we are to have, do, and be because of Jesus. Set and keep yourself free from roots of bitterness, affliction, and harm by keeping your eyes on Jesus and believing and speaking that we absolutely do have what we prayed for, along with all the other good things that the Bible says that Jesus was crucified and resurrected for us to have. And we see the scripture reference for that in John chapter 3 verse 16, Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2, Philemon 1 6, 2 Corinthians 1 20, Psalm 103 verses 1 to 5, and Romans 8 verses 31 to 39. So when hurts, behaviors, ailments, people, and situations try to plant roots of bitterness by telling you that there has been absolutely no change, Judge that situation, ailment, or relationship in righteousness and declare from your heart, Father, in the name of Jesus, I believe that you have not forsaken me and that you have delivered me from the power of darkness and have translated me in all that pertains to me into the kingdom of your dear son. And according to your word, I have dominion over the earth and authority over every work of the devil. So in the name of Jesus, I forbid the works of the devil to be at work in our bodies and our relationships or in anything that pertains to our family ever again. I recognize that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places, which means that even the thought of crafting an argument or trying to come up with a solution for those things, aside from what the word of God says, is futile. I will not focus on what I see, how I feel, how people behave, or how things appear. I will only focus on what the word of God says and what I have believed and spoken concerning those matters according to the word of God. I am not still waiting for things to change because according to the word of God, they were changed when I prayed and I believe I received what I prayed for. I believe in my heart and do not doubt that those things I prayed have already come to pass. While it might look like people and situations remain unchanged like stubborn obstacles, I believe that my situation has already not only changed, but it is far better than I could have ever asked, thought, or imagined. Therefore, there is no need for me to fret, worry, or become frustrated or irritated by those things, nor waste any time responding to or trying to figure out what to do about those ailments, behaviors, or situations. I believe I receive what I prayed for. The scripture reference for that prayer is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, Matthew 16, 19, Matthew 18, 18, Mark eleven twenty three to 24, Luke ten nineteen, Colossians one thirteen to fourteen, Ephesians three twenty, Psalm thirty seven eight, Ephesians six twelve, Second Corinthians five seven, and Daniel ten twelve. Don't be ignorant. When we fail to subdue, we give place to bitterness, and roots of bitterness can give place to sickness and harm. While roots of bitterness can often come as a result of hurtful situations with others. We need to take a look at how our own actions or inaction caused us to have the bad situation or harsh treatment in the first place. We can humbly lick our own wounds and hold on to bitterness, full of hurt and resentment from what someone else said or did, all while overlooking our own part in the matter. 
Again, Psalm 34, 19 tells us that many are the afflictions of the righteous. But if we are the righteous, we shouldn't be afflicted with harm or mistreatment in the first place. And if we are, it's generally because we did not follow God's instructions. Many times, if we would have only followed his instructions, we never would have made the decisions that put us in positions to be mistreated and harmed. Had we prayed and listened to the Holy Spirit beforehand, we would not have gotten involved in that ungodly relationship or taken that ungodly job. God tried to warn us because he knew that the person who invited you on that date or the people on that job were spiritually immature and would cause you harm. Just as he warned the Israelites about marrying ungodly people because he knew that doing so would cause them harm. The Bible tells us, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And that's found in Romans chapter 8 verses 6 to 8. When you're out shopping, how does an immature four-year-old behave when you tell them that they can't have the toy they randomly picked up? They will have a full-on tantrum. They don't care who's watching, how selfish or irrational their behavior is, or how loud they are, or who they're offending. The same can be said of a spiritually immature person. A spiritually immature person does not govern their conversations or how they treat people by the word of God. Like that child, they don't care who they offend, how irrational they might be, or how bad their behavior is. And when we proceed with our own directions and fail to abide by the word of God, we end up being mistreated and mishandled by the spiritually immature people and having the very harm God wanted to protect us from. While we can have good reason to be upset about the wrongs people have done against us, when we can step back and evaluate our part in the matter, we should repent and purpose to make better decisions so we don't position ourselves to be mistreated or harmed in the future. One other way that we fail to do our part and end up with bitterness is when we choose not to know or believe what his word says when we pray, and then when it seems like God didn't answer our prayers, we become bitter and end up mad at God. But why are those prayers unsuccessful? Oftentimes, when there's an ailment, a bad circumstance, or a severe wrong, we turn to traditions and opinions for help. Then we decide to half read the Bible and then pray, all the while not really sure if God will actually do anything to help us. And instead of following his instructions to believe and speak what his word says about the matter, we cry out to God, begging him to look on our suffering and fix our situation. Lord, surely you've seen how bad this situation is and how long we've suffered. Won't you do something about this? Then when our prayers seem to go unanswered, we get mad with the ailments, situations, people, and with God, causing roots of bitterness to form in our hearts. You got to remember, What you keep before your eyes, what you keep your eyes focused on, good and bad, that's what's going to manifest. That's going to remain. That's what's going to continue to be in effect. God commanded us to have dominion over this earth and over everything in it. And we do that by keeping our eyes focused on his word and by believing and speaking what the word of God says, that his power really is at work in our lives and in our relationships, in our bodies, in our finances, in every area of our lives, and really has produced the change that we have prayed for. We are not to pray with our eyes continually focused on ailments, hurts, 
the dysfunction that has been in relationships and situations. And I know that sounds like it's easier said than done. And I'm not saying this from a lighthearted kind of a place. I know that situations can be tough and challenging. Relationships, financial situations, housing. I know that those things can be tough and challenging. But I'm telling you what I've had to do for myself. You've got to continue to believe and speak his word in spite of that dysfunction that has tried to rear its ugly head in your relationship, in your finances, or in your health. Psalm 37, 8 reminds us, do not fret for it only causes harm. I mean, think about that. If somebody has wronged you or a situation has just ticked you off, when you continue to fret about this situation as it pertains to people, you, you can end up doing something that causes harm. But as it pertains to your physical body, if you continue to fret about sickness and ailments, those things just tend to get worse as you continue to fret about those things. So when we fail to subdue, and we fail to take our responsibility for our part in the matter, we let ourselves fret and focus on the hurt, the situation, or the ailment instead of focusing on what the Word of God says. The problem is what becomes magnified. And when we fret and pray with our focus on the problem, that causes our faith to be anchored in how bad the situation or ailment appears and in what others said or did instead of being anchored in what the Word of God says about the matter. Again, the spirit and power of God can only be at work when we believe and speak what his word says, believing that it really has produced what we specifically prayed for. But when we keep our eyes fixed on the issues, behaviors, and situations instead of the word of God, and we believe and speak that there has been no change, there will be no change. Then, days, months, and even years after the hurt or loss happens, every time we are reminded of that loss or that unfair treatment, that harsh situation, or we have to interact with the person who wronged us, we don't remind ourselves of what the word of God says. Instead, we focus on the hurt and can't figure out why our loving father in heaven forsook us and let those things happen. As a result, roots of bitterness continue to grow and multiply, becoming so strong that it makes us bitter, turns our hearts away from believing God, and can actually cause sickness to develop in our physical bodies. This can also happen when a person watches a loved one suffer with or die from sickness. When your focus remains on the ailment and what it did to the person or your family, that hurt and bitterness that remains can even cause some to develop the very same sickness that their loved one suffered with or died from. Why? Their focus was on the devastation of that ailment or sickness and that sickness or ailment is what was manifested in them as well. Again, as we have learned, God doesn't let ailments or bad situations come or persist, and he doesn't permit anybody to get away with harming others. However, when we accept ignorance, sin, or disobedience, and we don't think that we have to apply the Bible to every aspect of our lives, and we don't believe the word of God enough to know how to subdue the affairs of our lives with the word of God in prayer, the effects of the devil's harm can persist and even spread to other areas of our lives, just as God said they would in Deuteronomy 28, 61. He said, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you, every kind of sickness and disaster until you are destroyed. Again, God gave us his word so that we could be saved and protected from the works of the devil. So let's start applying his word today so that we no longer have to have the works of the devil in our lives. If bitterness came because you suffered sickness or wrong or harm or loss in the past, understand that you don't have to let sickness, disease and harm and dysfunction continue in your life. And while those situations were hurtful, don't let yourself be bound because of bitterness anymore. 
Instead of seeing yourself as the one who was wronged and forsaken, see yourself as the one going around like Jesus, setting the captives free. Not only from the sting of those offenses, but from any other harm the devil tried to bring as a result of that situation. Again, Ephesians 4.27 reminds us not to give any place to the devil, meaning don't give him any room to cause you harm. God cannot help you if you can't ever see your part in a matter or when you keep blaming him and others for the wrongs, sickness, harm, or loss. Let him help you now. Pray this now and remind yourself that you prayed this every time those thoughts of hurts try to come and torment you. Father, in the name of Jesus, I repent for blaming you for permitting me or my loved ones to be harmed. I realize now that you didn't cause or permit what happened. Forgive me for holding grudges against others for causing me harm. I let go of those hurts now. I know that you gave me dominion over the earth and over everything in it, and Jesus gave me authority over the works of the devil. Forgive me for the times where I did not fully read, believe, or obey your word and put myself in positions to be harmed or mistreated by others. Forgive me, Lord, for not having dominion or subduing things that came to cause me harm. In the name of Jesus, cause those wrongs that were done to be corrected and cause whatever was lost or stolen to be restored. Cause me to be far better than I would have been had I never encountered those wrongs in the first place. I will no longer look to those who wronged me, expecting them to recompense me, but I'll keep my eyes fixed on you, Lord, believing that I receive every good thing that I've prayed for. And because your word says that you lead me in paths of righteousness, help me to follow your directions in everything that I do so that I can always have the good that you have prepared for me. In Jesus' name, God, I give you praise and I give you glory. I thank you for deliverance from every unjust situation. I thank you that you have favored me. You favored everyone that is listening right now, God. And I thank you that deliverance is nigh us now, Lord. I thank you that we are not still bound in those unjust situations, dysfunctional relationships or places of poverty, lack, sickness, or disability of any kind. I thank you that you have delivered us. See yourself delivered right now. Don't try to figure out how you're going to be delivered or how that situation is going to change. See yourself as delivered right now. See yourself in the new place, the new place of peace, the new place of joy, the new place of healing. See yourself there now. Don't try to figure out how to get there. Just thank God that you are there. God, I praise you right now that we are all delivered. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. So now we're going to look at don't be ignorant about forgiveness. And this section is pretty big. I mean, it's it's pretty impactful because this is one area that many Christians, many people, not just unsaved people, but Christians get stuck in whenever we have had to deal with bitterness and wrongs and having to forgive others. And we don't want to have anything hindering our prayers. We don't want anything hindering our healing. We don't want anything hindering our peace. So let's talk about forgiveness. As Christians, we are reminded to pray for and to forgive others. When we have been hurt by others, instead of focusing on the wrongs that were done, our desire should be for God to help the other person so that they don't continue on that path and cause harm to anyone else. But do we really have to forgive? The Bible tells us, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And that's in Mark chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Luke 17, 1 through 10 tells us, 
Then he, Jesus, said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and if he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by your roots and be planted into the sea, and it will obey you. And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded of him? I think not. So likewise, when you have done all of those things which you are commanded, say that we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Again, that passage was in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Now, as we see in those two passages, Jesus taught his disciples that forgiving others is our duty. And just as the reasonable service of a teacher is to teach, the reasonable service of a waitress is to serve food in a restaurant, the reasonable service that is required of a disciple of Jesus is to forgive. With that understood, we should remember five things about forgiveness. When we ask God to forgive others, we are asking him to have mercy on them, even though they have done wrong. And we see this example in a parable Jesus taught one day. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that you can cut it down. And that passage comes from Luke chapter 13, verses 6 to 9. Now, while the landowner sought to impose immediate judgment and cut the tree down, the servant asked him to have mercy and give the tree more time. Ask yourself this question. When you do wrong, do you want God to judge you immediately with no possible chance of making any corrections? Or do you want him to forgive you? to warn you and give you time to see where you've messed up so that you can repent, make corrections, and bear the fruit that you were supposed to. Likewise, when we ask God to forgive others, we are asking him to have the same mercy on the person that we would want him to have on us. Secondly, our forgiveness and prayers are what causes God to be able to reach the person who wronged us with the message of salvation and repentance so that their prayers will not be hindered. When Jesus hung on the cross, He prayed for God to forgive the ignorant mob that mocked and crucified him. Although they wronged him, he let go of his right to be hurt and refused to let those wrongs be held against them. His forgiveness is what caused them to be able to hear and receive the message of salvation when Peter preached to them later. And you can see that recorded in Luke chapter 23 and Acts chapter 2. As the accuser of the brethren, Satan goes before God day and night with accusations of wrongs to block our prayers for healing and help. 
And we see the scripture reference for that in Revelation 10, 12. Now, while those people would still have to acknowledge their sins and repent, if Jesus had not asked God to forgive them, that sin would have remained and they would not have been able to hear and receive the message of salvation when Peter preached. I mean, think about that for a minute. Have you ever tried to talk to somebody and they are not in a place to hear? You can talk and talk and talk and talk and it is so you're talking to a brick wall. Well, likewise, if Jesus had not prayed for them and asked God to have mercy on them to forgive them, when Peter preached, his words would have been hitting a brick wall. They would not have heard Peter preach the message of salvation. It would have fallen on deaf ears. But because Jesus forgave them, when Peter did preach, they were able to hear and receive correction immediately. Likewise, we forgive others so that as much as it is up to us, nothing remains that would hinder the healing and help others still need to receive, whether that be five minutes or five years after they wronged us. Thirdly, after you forgive, subdue that situation and declare what needs to be done, looking solely to God to work in that person or situation to cause the wrongs to be corrected and whatever was harmed or stolen to be healed and restored. Again, when we ask God to have mercy on the person and to forgive them and to draw them to receive correction and to repent, that takes care of the issue with the person. Now, ask yourself, what needs to be done in your life? What was affected in your life that needs to be corrected? Again, when we forgive, we are not stalled, needing and waiting for an apology or waiting to see change in the person or situation before we're able to forgive the person or move on. But why would we be stalled in the first place? because we never got over being wronged. Far too often, we're taught that when the good Christian forgives a person, we're to walk in love and make peace with or accept having been harmed or wronged. But according to the word of God, when we do nothing with our words and accept those wrongs, that's a failure to subdue. Again, we see scriptural reference for that in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 to 28, Matthew 16, 19 and 18, 18. So when we forgive, We ask God to correct the person and also use our words to bring about the correction and restitution that we desire. Don't just accept being wronged. Now, you don't go and take matters into your own hands by trying to vindicate yourself or make somebody do right. No, use your words in prayer to do that. Just as God is not upset when you declare what you specifically want when praying for healing or for a new car, God does not think that you're being selfish or vengeful when you use your words in prayer to subdue your life when you have been wronged. And as we speak concerning these matters, we don't fix our eyes on the person or situation, looking to see change, waiting for them to give us an apology. We're not looking for that. We are looking with our eyes fixed on God, fixed on his word, believing and speaking, God, I thank you that you heard me. Lord, I know deliverance is not me. It's upon me right now, God. Restitution is mine, God. I thank you that you've indemnified me and vindicated me, Lord. Glory to your name, God. That is what we do. We are focused on his word. We're not looking at that person because if you keep looking at that person or what the situation looks like, that'll make you throw your hands up and give up because outwardly they can still appear the same. But we're not looking at what the situation looks like because the word of God tells us that we walk by faith and not by sight. And as we continue to speak concerning those matters, we keep our eyes fixed on his word believing that we do have every good thing that we have prayed for concerning that situation or that person or that relationship according to the word of God. And the scripture reference for that is Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2.
The fourth thing we want to remember about forgiveness is that forgiveness is for us just as much as it is for the person who wronged us. It keeps our hands clean so that we can continue to freely receive from God. When we forgive others, we make a choice to let go of the wrath, the vengeful feelings, and desire for others to be judged and condemned. Just as we would want God to turn away from wrath, vengeance, and from executing judgment on us when we sin. And in those moments, when we are praying for our own needs, that is when we should stop and think about whether or not we need to forgive anybody else and to do so immediately so that our own prayers are not hindered. Remember, Jesus told his disciples to pray for God to forgive our trespasses or our wrongs and our debts, what we actually owe, just as we forgive those who trespassed against us and owed us. And if we fail to forgive the debts and trespasses of others, our Father in heaven will not forgive us. Again, the scripture reference for that is Mark eleven twenty-five and 26 and Matthew 6, 5 to 15. And whenever sin remains for us, our prayers will be hindered. In Matthew 18, 21 to 35, Jesus taught about the parable of the unforgiving servant. In this parable, a man who owed a huge debt begged his master to give him time to repay the debt. But instead of throwing the man and his family in jail or putting the man on an impossible timetable to repay the massive debt, the master completely forgave the debt and no longer had any wrath or vengeance about the man's debt, making it as if the debt never happened. However, when that same servant had the opportunity to forgive and let go of wrath for someone else's debt, he refused. And when his master heard about it, the master reinstated his wrath for that servant's debt because that man refused to forgive another servant. Like the unforgiving servant in that parable, if we don't forgive, then God will not forgive us. And whenever sin remains for us, the power of God will not and cannot be at work to help heal, save, or forgive us. Again, when we choose not to forgive others, that causes the forgiveness that we receive to be removed. And if our sin remains, we are no longer able to freely receive anything from God. Jesus had no sin, but had Jesus chosen not to forgive, his unforgiveness would have been sin for him. And that would have prevented God from being able to raise him from the dead. I mean, think about it. You know, we like to say that Jesus is the holy and righteous son of God, which he is. But had he chosen not to forgive as he hung on the cross, there was still something that Jesus needed God to do for him. He needed the power of God to be at work to raise him from the dead. And had he chosen not to forgive, come on, how many times have we needed the power of God for the miraculous to be at work in our lives? I don't need any dirt holding his power back in my life. Wherever you need to let go and forgive, man, forgive. Let go, let go of that bitterness and wrath and vengefulness in your heart. Ask God to forgive the person and ask God to help you to forgive. In Jesus' name. Again, we cannot receive anything from God while we hold on to bitterness and refuse to forgive others and refuse to apologize or make corrections ourselves. As children of God and disciples of Jesus, we have been commanded to forgive. When our eyes are on his word, We ask God to forgive the person, fully believing that because he sees and hears us when we pray, he has not only forgiven them, but he has brought about the complete change in the situation that we have desired. And we see the scripture reference for that in 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15. Again, you remind yourself that you've prayed concerning that situation or that person. I mean, even when you're praying over your food. Thank you, Father, for blessing my food and my drink and taking away sickness from my midst. And God, I thank you that you have heard me concerning that situation. 
When you get up in the morning, God, I thank you that you heard me concerning that situation. When you go to the bathroom, God, I thank you that you heard me concerning that situation. When you're driving in your car, God, I thank you that you heard me. Let his praises continually be in your mouth for whatever that you've prayed for. We keep our minds fixed on what his word says. And that keeps us in a place of praise when we can focus on what his word says about anything. But when our prayers are for God to get the person back or for them to get what they deserve, the only thing God sees and hears is that we don't want them to be forgiven and that we must be completely okay with not having forgiveness for ourselves. Again, we only tend to have hurt feelings when we think that God let people get away with hurting us or causing us harm. And for us to have or maintain that perspective means that we either did not fully read or fully believe what the word of God says. We must choose to forgive again. It's it's a choice. Some might even say, how do I forgive a person if they never apologize? While a person can ask for forgiveness, Mark eleven twenty five and 26 shows us that your part in forgiveness happens between you and God, which means that you can forgive the person during your own personal prayer time, even if they never apologize to you. He says, when you stand praying, forgive. So while you're on your knees before bed or while you're praying in your car, while you're praying and while you're getting dressed and you remember that somebody has wronged you, ask God to forgive them. So that that's not hindering your prayers in any kind of way. Now, lastly, the fifth thing to remember about forgiveness is one of the most important. Let people remain forgiven. Remember, once you have prayed to forgive others and use your words to subdue your life where you have been wronged, thoughts of what that person said or did may try to return after you forgave them and prayed for them. But why would feelings like that try to come? To get you to dwell on that old hurt, get mad all over again, and to reclaim all of the wrath, vengeance, and desire for the other person to be judged and condemned so that the devil has grounds to wreak havoc in your life and hold up what you prayed for. Far too often, when others have wronged us, we might pray about God fixing the situation, but if it seems like there has been no change in the person, we give up on what we prayed for, convinced that the person or the situation that we prayed for will never change. But when you understand that our prayers really can cause a person to change and cause wrongs to be corrected, we must choose to pray for that person as diligently as we would pray for our own healing or help, believing and thanking God that he has changed them, corrected them, and has made them to turn away from sin and to do his will. However, when you let yourself entertain those old thoughts of hurts and replay what the person said or did, that causes you to no longer consider the person as forgiven and causes you to no longer be forgiven. Again, when you choose not to forgive, your heart takes hold of all the vengeance and wrath that you had towards the person, causing God's wrath and vengeance for Adam's sin to still remain for you. And if God ever directs you to do something nice for that person, you reflect on that wrath and choose to withhold good from the person. But you have to realize those negative thoughts of the past are what the devil uses to snatch the word that came for you to do them good. Instead, when those thoughts and feelings about the past try to come, That's when you need to remind yourself and declare out loud that you already forgave the person and that you're not holding anything against them anymore. Again, Ephesians 4.27 reminds us not to give any place to the devil. So once you forgive a person, let them remain forgiven so you won't give the devil any room to cause you or the other person any harm. Even after reading all of this, some may still struggle with forgiving others. 
After being wronged, we often focus on the person who wronged us, saying that they knew what they were doing, they meant to cause us harm, and they probably will never change, giving us the reason not to pray for the person or stand in faith for the person's deliverance. It is deliverance, because if somebody is actively pursuing a course that is contrary to the word of God, they need to be delivered from that situation. And if they are not praying for themselves, then you need to be praying for them. The main thing we must remember is that all dysfunction, be it sickness or ungodly behavior, is from the devil. And just as with the mob that crucified Jesus, the person or people that wronged you did so because they were influenced by and blinded by the devil. And we see the scripture reference for that in 1 Corinthians 2.8 and 2 Corinthians 4.4. Now you wouldn't look at a sick person and wash your hands of them saying that they probably got what they deserve or say something like, it doesn't look like they'll ever get any better. No, you'd pray and ask God to have mercy on them and exercise your authority in prayer for their deliverance. And just as you would persist in prayer to resist symptoms of sickness that try to persist in them, you likewise persist in prayer for that ungodly behavior that's tried to be at work in them, forbidding any ungodly thing that has tried to be at work in them to do so anymore and asking God to enlighten them with his spirit. And the scripture reference for that is Ephesians 1 verses 15 to 23. Now, if you need to forgive anybody or subdue a wrong that's happened to you, pray this. Father, in the name of Jesus, forgive me for any time that I have not forgiven others. I forgive everyone that has ever wronged me or tried to cause me harm, and I ask you to forgive them too. I ask you, Father, have mercy on them. Don't judge them now, but give them time to repent and make corrections. In the name of Jesus, fill them with the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. I know, God, that the only reason that they came against me in the first place is because they didn't know you. So give them a revelation of who you are today, Father. Make them to know, God, this day who you are, that you are real and that your word is true. Enlighten their understanding, Father, so that they'll know that what they said or did was wrong and why it was wrong. Draw them to repent to make whatever corrections are necessary. Warn them not to ever say or do those things to anyone else again so that their own prayers are not hindered and so that they don't reap judgment or harm. But if they are unwilling to repent or make corrections, remove them from their places of power and influence so that they won't be able to cause anyone else harm or lead anyone else astray with their bad example. I look to you, Father, to vindicate me and indemnify me. Cause me to be far better than I would have been had they never harmed or mistreated me or withheld good from me in the first place. Now, in the name of Jesus, I take authority over these relationships and situations. And in the name of Jesus, I forbid every ungodly thing that has tried to hinder us from walking in love, truth, and maturity from doing so anymore. Satan, I forbid you to blind their minds anymore. Wherever I was wronged, hurt, robbed, or mistreated in any way, I command those things to be corrected and restored to me now. And I forbid any ungodly thing to hinder me from having the correction and restoration I call for. Angels go forth and cause the good that I've called for to continually be upheld and enforced. In Jesus' name, amen. we got to start applying the word in everything that we do. Yes, it's important to forgive. Yes, it's important to walk in love. But we got to remember that we have a part in prayer to subdue wherever we have been wronged. Amen. Next, don't be ignorant. Understand your responsibility when dealing with a sinning brother. We're going a little bit further with forgiveness. In this section of the text, we are doing a deep dive into forgiveness, tackling it from every possible angle where our prayers could be hindered. 
because we don't want our prayers to be hindered, not for healing or anything else. When God first began leading the Israelites from Egypt, they did not have knowledge of the law and they relied on him to be their protector and deliverer. After the law was given to them by Moses, they had knowledge and were now expected to execute judgment whenever sin was in their midst. And why did they have to uphold this part of the law? To keep the rest of the congregation blessed, safe, and protected. As mature Christians who now understand man's dominion, spiritual law, and spiritual authority, we are expected to do the same thing. Again, we have a choice in what we permit or forbid. And if we permit sinful behavior to continue in our midst, knowing that the Bible warns us about consequences for such behavior, we will join ourselves to those consequences. Jesus said, If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into eternal life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And that's recorded in Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9 and 15 to 20. Over the last few pages, we've talked a good bit about praying for those who have hurt or wronged us. And when we look back to chapter 8, entitled Confidently Exercising Spiritual Authority in Prayer, and you can look specifically on pages 210 to 220, we see that when the apostles were first gathered together in prayer in Acts chapter 4, they asked God to do something. However, as they matured in spiritual authority, we see that they no longer asked God to do anything. Rather, they declared the outcome that they desired to happen. Likewise, whether we are needing healing, help, or anything else for ourselves or our family or those who ask for us to pray with them or for them, we may start out praying like spiritual babies, asking God to do something in the matter. But once we have heard enough to exercise spiritual authority for ourselves, we are no longer to ask God to do something. Rather, we are to use our spiritual authority to forbid the works of the devil to remain and to declare how we want God's power to be at work to produce the outcome that we desire fully believing that what we said comes to pass. And for example, in the name of Jesus, I forbid any ungodliness to be at work in our relationship anymore. Father, continually be at work in Tom to will and to do for your good pleasure. Send laborers for your harvest that he would hear your word. You speak the outcome that you desire. Again, as spiritual babies, when we have been wronged or hurt by others, we can pray for God to correct the person and see an immediate turnaround in the person and the relationship without really having to exercise any additional authority against the works of the devil. We can even have the same kind of successful results the next few times we pray about people in relationships. However, as time passes, we are expected to mature in the things of God, 
and those same baby prayers no longer seem to work. Again, this is why so very often it seems that our prayers seem to go unanswered and people seem to get away with wronging us or harming us. We keep asking God to do something to exercise authority for us about the people who have said or done wrongful things instead of having dominion and exercising spiritual authority to declare the specific outcome that we desire. Again, we're looking back at how the Israelites, before they left Egypt, they didn't have the law. But after they had gotten out into the wilderness, God gave Moses the law and gave them some instructions that they were supposed to abide by. And part of those instructions included dealing with sin in the camp. They had a responsibility to subdue. And if they didn't, that was going to hinder the power of God from being at work for them. So looking back at that passage in Matthew 18, where Jesus was talking about dealing with a sinning brother, it's important to note that those instructions were given concerning a sinning brother or a sister, not a stranger or someone who was not connected to the body. Now, why is that important? You should not expect the unsaved, those who you don't know personally, or those that follow other religions to be aligned with what the word of God says. Why not? Just as it would seem foolish for someone of another religion to ask you why you don't pray to their God, telling someone who's not a Christian or under your authority to receive godly correction from you will seem completely foolish to them. And we see the scripture reference for that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8 and chapter 2 verse 14. Nevertheless, while you cannot, you should not take it upon yourself to try to discipline your neighbor's child or make your co-worker go to church with you on Sunday, you do have the right to impart godly correction to those that you are connected to, those in your house, those under your authority. Now, what did Jesus say that we're to do when we know that a brother or sister in our church body or even in our family has wronged us or is practicing sinful behavior? He said, talk to the person one-on-one. That's the first course of action. A lot of times we can run to social media or tell 10 friends about something that happened between you and a coworker or you and a family member instead of dealing with the issue one-on-one. And that ends up creating far more problems and controversies than were necessary. Just talk to the person one-on-one to get to the root of the problem. But if they will not listen, then it doesn't say go on social media. It says come back with one or two others, not one or two random others, but one or two that are connected to your body, one or two that can impart wisdom in the situation, not just one or two random busybodies or meddlers. And if they don't hear when you bring back the one or two others, then you tell it to the church. Again, these are people that you're connected to. For them to be a sinning brother or a sinning sister, they have to be part of your body in the first place. In a family dynamic, you have the parents, you have the children, and you have any other close relatives that would qualify for that scenario that you'd be bringing into that situation. You're not bringing in distant cousins who are not connected to that. You're not bringing in neighbors who are not connected to that. You're bringing in people who are connected to that situation. Now, if they refuse to hear the church, if they refuse to hear the family body, then they are to be treated as one who does not belong to that body as a stranger. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? Now, while you might not hang out with a stranger or even talk faith with a stranger, if you realize that they weren't saved or needed to know about healing or help in the word of God, you would continue to diligently pray about that person during your own personal prayer time for them to be healed or receive salvation. So likewise, with that sinning brother or sister, you would cease regular fellowship with the person, but you continue to pray for them. 
Whether you are going to talk to the person by yourself or you're at the point of telling the matter to the whole church or to the leaders, you're not doing so from a place of malice or to shame the person. The goal in talking to the person is to help the person to see the error in their ways so that they can make correction to keep themselves from the devil's harm and to continue to have the good that God has for them. However, not every person wants to hear correction when you want to talk to them. And you don't always know the right things to say to help the person to see correction. What's worse is that far too often we can rush to tell people what and how we think they need to be corrected instead of stopping to pray to make sure we're on the right path first. Just as with anything else that we need help with in life, we need the Holy Spirit and the power of God to direct our thinking and conversations so that the exact thing that needs to be said or done is said or done. The Bible tells us, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. And that's recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Luke 21, verses 14 and 15 says, Therefore settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all of your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Now, what do we learn from those verses? God knows exactly what people need to hear to receive correction, whether that be directly from the Holy Spirit, from you, from their neighbor down the street, or from the talking frog in the movie that they watched with their five-year-old last night. So even before we think about going to talk to the person, when we recognize that the person's words or actions were hurtful, wrong, or sinful, don't try to use your own logic to figure out what you should say to the person or even when you should talk to the person. At that moment, you need to stop and pray. Pray for the person and pray for yourself using your spiritual authority in prayer so that you will know what to say if you need to say anything at all and so that the person will hear and receive correction as well as make whatever corrections need to be done. And when you do so, the spirit of God goes to work to do exactly what you have believed and declared. So again, when you recognize that somebody is doing wrong and they're on the wrong track, don't take it upon yourself to just immediately jump out there and say, hey, You know, I don't think you should be doing that. Stop and pray first. Now, with our responsibility understood, what happens next? When we exercise spiritual authority in prayer concerning those who've done wrong or wronged us, does that mean that the person will automatically do what we prayed? And if they do, will it be right away? We got to remember, when we pray according to the word of God, our prayers are always 100% successful. Which means if you pray for a person to apologize, to be corrected or come to repentance, the spirit and power of God immediately went to work to do what you said. Now, while there can be times where you can see an immediate change in a person or situation, there can be times when we pray, time passes, and it can seem like there's absolutely no change at all in the person, as if God never said anything at all to the person about their behavior or their actions. So what happened? Again, whenever we pray according to the word of God, the spirit of God does absolutely go to work to reveal to the person what they needed to correct. However, after receiving those revelations, the person still has a choice as to whether or not to actually do what God said. There can even be times where the Holy Spirit will tell people to straighten up or else, but some will even choose to have the or else that the Holy Spirit warned them about instead of apologizing or making whatever corrections were necessary. 
If after praying and trying to talk to the person, they choose to continue on the same path and choose not to apologize or make corrections, we are to follow Jesus's instructions in Matthew 18 and separate them from the body. But that does not mean that we should lose hope and give up on the person. While they may be separated, we are to continue to diligently pray for the person, believing that the word we pray will come to pass. And you can see scripture reference for that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to 15. With that understood, must we really separate ourselves from the person? Just as when things that harm one part of your physical body can affect other parts of your body. When you let yourself remain connected to people who are participating in ungodly behaviors, you can likewise reap the harm that they sowed for. While the command to separate yourself from the person may sound harsh, why would Jesus command such a thing? To keep the sinning brother or sister from influencing the rest of the family or church body to accept or follow after their words, actions, or behaviors. Again, these are Jesus' instructions to his disciples. These instructions seem to be the foundation for excommunicating a person from the church, a practice that was more commonly seen in earlier times. But just as the laws for punishing sin under Old Testament laws seemed severe, those punishments were never to be carried out as an abuse of power by those in charge or as a means to humiliate or control people in the church. Jesus' purpose for separating the person was twofold, so that the person would come to themselves and repent, and so that the consequences the person was willfully sowing for with their actions would not spread to the rest of the congregation. Now, what do these passages tell us we can expect if we fail to follow these instructions and do not confront or separate ourselves from a sinning brother or sister? Whatever we choose to remain joined to on the earthly side will likewise be joined to spiritual consequences of those things and relationships and eternal life, whether that be in heaven or in hell. Again, looking back at that passage in Matthew 18, Jesus said, it is better for you to enter into life. He's talking about eternal life. God loves everybody. He wants the entire body to be with him in heaven. We are all members of the body. However, if the person who's representing the hand is not doing right, remaining joined to that hand will cause the whole body to be cast into hell. So he says, separate that hand from you and enter into life without that sinful hand. So in separating ourselves from those who are not walking upright, sometimes you do have to separate yourself. It's not to try to create division and strife in families, but if people are not walking upright before the Lord, if they're not walking in line with the word and you know they are doing things that are influencing other members to do wrong or go astray, you got to separate yourself. And that's not my instruction. That's Jesus' instruction. Again, we're covering things in this chapter that can hinder our prayers. We understand now how to exercise spiritual authority in prayer and have our prayers to be effective. We don't want anything to hinder our prayers. You've heard of guilt by association. I don't need hindrances by association. So if you're doing something that you don't need to be doing, I might need to separate myself from you. If I brought this to your attention that you're doing this thing and it's causing problems and you're not willing to receive correction, well, we might have to temporarily separate from one another till you come to yourself. Otherwise, I can end up taking part in your consequences and I don't want any part of that. It's not that you don't love the person. It's like this song I heard. It's not that I don't love you, but I love me more. You can love yourself and the other person, but just know when to separate yourself and pray for the person so that they can come to repentance and make correction wherever necessary. Amen. Okay. Don't be ignorant. No one ever really gets away with anything. 
Those who refuse to repent while there is still time will eventually reap the unchangeable judgment consequences they sowed for, even if they repented and were forgiven. Again, in doing this deep dive on forgiveness, we often have our eyes fixed on what's happening to the other person. Well, it's been a whole lot of years. They don't seem like they ever suffered any consequences from that wrong that they did to me, you know, all those years ago. Well, the word of God tells us that God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, he will definitely reap. Again, as we previously covered, as much as it is up to us, when we become aware that we have done wrong, we should repent and make corrections as soon as possible. Why? While 1 John 1, nine tells us that when we do repent, God will certainly forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Galatians 6, 7 through 9 likewise assures us that God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap, which means that even though we can receive salvation or be forgiven, if we knowingly continue to do wrong, we will eventually receive the judgment consequences for those actions. And we also see additional scripture reference for that in James chapter 4, verse 17. This is why people sometimes encounter sickness, dysfunction, and difficult times, and even untimely death, even after turning over a new leaf, as we saw with the Apostle Paul. You know, a lot of times people can look at the Apostle Paul's story and say that, you know, he was tested and tried because he was an apostle of the Lord. And that is not why he went through those trials. He went through those trials because of the persecution that he had brought upon the church. As Jesus hung on the cross, he prayed for God to forgive the ignorant mob who had been incited against him by the ungodly religious leaders and for the Roman soldiers who had nailed him to the cross because they were just doing their job. You can see the scripture reference for that in Luke 23 verse 34. However, Jesus did not pray for God to forgive the ungodly religious leaders. Why not? Was Jesus showing partiality? Was he choosing not to pray for his enemies? No. The scriptures had already prophesied that the ungodly religious leaders would not be able to receive salvation. The Bible tells us, And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you will see, and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And that's found in Matthew chapter 13 verses 10 through 17. Now, what was Jesus saying here? While Jesus did command his disciples to pray for their enemies in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36, we do not see where Jesus spent any time ministering to or preaching to those who had firmly rejected the gospel, and he instructed his disciples to do likewise in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. Again, if we look back at this passage, he says, 
for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes, they have closed. God didn't close their eyes. They, by their continual rejection of the truth, that is the word of God, cause their eyes to be turned away. They cause their ears to be dull in hearing. You keep not listening to what God's saying. Eventually, you're just not going to hear it all. You keep turning your eye away from his word. You're choosing to turn your eye away from his word. And that's what happened to these religious leaders here. Jesus demonstrated this during his earthly ministry. Again, we don't see where Jesus spent any time ministering to or preaching to those who firmly rejected the gospel. Jesus preached to those who wanted to hear. He says, if you want to hear, you're going to keep hearing and you're going to keep getting filled with the word of God. But if you keep turning away, the little bit that you did have, it's going to get diminished and diminished so you're left with nothing. And again, Jesus demonstrated this during his earthly ministry. Because the ungodly religious leaders, as well as those in the towns of Chorazin and Bethsaida, continually renounced and refused to accept the gospel, he told them that they would have no escape in the day of judgment and did not pray for God to forgive them or draw them to still be able to receive salvation. Again, you can see the scripture reference for yourself in Mark chapter 3, verses 28 and 29, and Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 24, and the entire chapters of Matthew chapter 23 and Luke chapter 11. Remember, just as you cannot make someone receive healing, you cannot make someone receive salvation and forgiveness if they don't want it. And as we saw with Peter, when he preached, those who desired to receive the gospel heard it and received salvation, whereas those who had continued to reject God's words were spiritually restrained and were no longer able to hear or understand his word. And if they could not hear or have faith in his word, they would not be able to receive salvation. Again, what comes by hearing and hearing? Faith. Faith is a spiritual thing. You keep hearing and hearing what the word of God says, you'll be able to hear more when the word of God is spoken. When Jesus spoke in parables, they couldn't receive anything when he spoke in parables because those things are spiritually discerned. It went over their heads. And why did it go over their heads? Because they had already continually turned their hearts away from hearing what God actually said. Now, as I mentioned before, Jesus asked God to forgive the ignorant crowd and the Roman soldiers, because he knew they lacked understanding and they were only following what the leaders directed them to do. However, Jesus also knew that even though they were ignorant, there would still be some degree of consequences for their actions if they never repented and that they would never repent if God didn't draw them to do so. And we see the scripture reference for that in Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 11, and Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Now, the Bible goes on to tell us, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And that's found in John 20, verse 23. First Corinthians 1 21 says, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness or simpleness of preaching. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached to the same ignorant people that had mocked and rejected Jesus as he was crucified. And we see that in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41. Now, before hearing the gospel preached, the mob and the soldiers were ignorant. However, once they heard the gospel preached, they were no longer ignorant and now had a choice to make. They could have repented. They could have changed their ways and chosen to accept Jesus as their savior, or they could have continued to reject the gospel and reap the consequences. And by simply hearing Peter preach through the foolishness of preaching, those once ignorant people 
repented, were saved, and they gained access to the full sozo package in Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2 tells us, But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And heed my words. He's telling them, listen to what I'm saying. Hear me right now. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. It says those who received it got it. It didn't say everybody, but it said those who received. So they still had a choice to receive. Now we see a similar example with another ignorant mob and a disciple named Stephen. Stephen was one of the men chosen by the 12 apostles to assist with the task of the early church. The Bible tells us that after Stephen preached, the religious leader stirred up an angry mob, which chased him and began to stone him. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel, And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. And that was found in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 15, and chapter 7, verses 59 to 60. Now, as the ignorant crowd stoned Stephen to death, Stephen asked God to forgive them and to not hold their actions against them. And why did he pray for them? Because they were incited to do those things by the religious leaders. Now, while the crowd did not immediately come to repentance as the others did when Peter preached, one of the people in the crowd that day did eventually make a sincere life change and receive salvation. And that was the Apostle Paul. And you can see that in Acts chapter 7, verse 58 and Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Now, Paul did eventually turn from sin and receive salvation, and he went on to preach the gospel. But he reaped unimaginable persecution because of the harm that he himself had continually caused those in the early church. Some might be wondering, but didn't Stephen pray for God to forgive them all? And if you pray for God to forgive people and they make a dramatic change like the Apostle Paul did, doesn't that mean that they are excused from the consequences of their actions? 
The Bible tells us, discipline your children while there is still hope. Do not be a willing party to their death. And that's found in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 18. Second Peter 3, verses 9 and 10 says, The Lord does not delay his promise as some regard delay, but he is patient. He is long suffering with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a mighty roar and the elements will be dissolved by fire and the earth and everything done on it will be found out. Proverbs 19.18 tells us that when we fail to discipline our children, we become party to their destruction. The same can be said of ourselves. When we fail to discipline ourselves, when we fail to make corrections and align our lives with the word of God, we cause ourselves to reap destruction. God is long-suffering, waiting often days, weeks, months, years, and sometimes even decades for people to repent and make corrections. But why don't we? Far too often people saved and unsaved alike know better, but don't do better because the consequences seem far off or non-existent. And this is also true when it seems as though those around the person are supporting or encouraging them to continue on that wrong path. When the people of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, were headed for certain judgment, God sent the prophet Jeremiah to warn them to repent. For 23 years, Jeremiah came pleading with the people and the leaders to repent while there was still hope, while there was still time, but no one listened and judgment came just as he said it would. And you can see that in Jeremiah chapter 28, 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25. And when judgment came, they could not pray fast or sow their way out of it. You need to remember that. And as we saw with these Israelites, they looked around and they were saying, hey, everything looks great for us. Why are you telling us we need to repent? I don't see God striking us down. We're not in a famine. We're not enduring any times of lack or poverty. We're prospering right now. So why do you think we need to make any change? Just because it doesn't look like judgment is right here staring you in the face, that doesn't mean that you don't need to make any correction. If God is telling you to make correction, stop what you're doing and make correction while there's still time, while there's still hope. Everything doesn't need to be ablaze before you decide to turn around and make correction. Fire and brimstone do not need to be raining from from the heavens before you decide to make corrections. It's like by the time fire and brimstone is raining from heaven, it's too late. Let's not get to the too late part. Let's make correction while there's still time, while there's still hope. Again, when judgment came for the Israelites, they couldn't pray their way out of it. They couldn't fast their way out of it. They couldn't even sow their way out of it. Likewise, Paul and those other religious leaders encountered judgment because they knew better but chose not to repent while there was still time. Anybody could repent and apologize when they see Jesus and his angels descending from heaven on the cloud. But for a person to only repent when things get to that point, was it because of a sincere heart change where they realized and acknowledged that they had done wrong? Or did they just repent because the proof of the consequences was right there in front of them? In moments like those, people tend to be more sorry that they're about to face consequences than they are for actually having committed the wrongs in the first place. And when we get to that point before we repent, we will not be able to escape the level of judgment and consequences that most certainly will eventually follow. You need to understand and remember this. Judgment consequences are based on knowledge. And if we continue to sin when we know better, we'll face greater consequences. The Bible tells us, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. 
For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds, I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. If we deliberately continue sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant, which made us holy, as if it were common and unholy, and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's found in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 15 to 18 and verses 26 to 31. James 4, 17 tells us to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is sin. Most people living during the Bible days were not educated and had no real knowledge of the scriptures. That's why people often marveled when Jesus and the apostles could expound on the scriptures. Back then, the common people relied on the priests, the Pharisees, and the other religious leaders to interpret the scriptures for them and direct them in the things of God. They didn't have enough scripture knowledge to really accept or reject salvation on their own. Unlike today, being welcomed in the synagogue was essential to their daily lives, so much so that people feared opposing the religious leaders as doing so could cause them to be kicked out of the synagogue. We saw an example of that in John chapter 9, verses 20 to 23. Now, why is this important to know? Most people today have some level of education, much more than the people that lived during the Bible days. And most people also don't live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of political or religious leaders. However, common people back then lived by the words of the religious leaders, looking to them to tell them what was right and wrong. So when the learned religious leaders told lies and incited the ignorant mobs against Stephen, the crowd believed that what they were doing was right because the leaders directed them to do it. While the mob that stoned Stephen and the Roman soldiers that nailed Jesus to the cross were ignorant, Paul was not completely ignorant. He was a learned Pharisee with full knowledge of the scriptures and had even been taught by one of the religious leaders named Gamaliel a man who the Bible says knew enough to warn the other leaders about the harm they could face for persecuting God's people. And we see that in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. As we saw in the parable of the unforgiving servant, when we choose to withhold mercy from others, there will be no mercy for us, even if we were previously forgiven. While Stephen prayed for God to forgive Paul for his part in his death, Paul nullified the mercy he had received by continuing to mercilessly pursue and persecute Christians. While Paul eventually received salvation, fervently preached the gospel, and the power of God mightily worked through him to minister to great numbers of people, he could not escape the judgment and consequences he sowed for. And we see scripture reference for that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7-10. to 10. 
Likewise, we can eventually receive salvation and go on to do a lot of good things in the name of the Lord. But if we refuse to repent while there's still time and continue to sin or continue to withhold mercy from others when we know better, we will forsake God's forgiveness and cause ourselves to reap unwanted judgment and consequences. Again, this course is a study of spiritual law, spiritual authority, and man's dominion. We can't just read the Bible on Sundays and apply our own logic to life Monday through Saturday. We have to apply what the word of God says, and we have to listen to the Holy Spirit and make correction wherever necessary. And just because God hasn't cracked the sky with lightning and sent down fire and brimstone, you can't just sit there and act unaffected and think that you haven't done wrong when you know you talk wrong to your sister or your brother. You know you've talked wrong to your mother or your father or to your children or to your spouse. Those that are closest to you are the ones that often bear the brunt of your worst behavior. And, you know, we can be quick to offer outward apologies to the public for different things, but we can be awful slow to apologize to those closest to us. And that's where we have to make correction. Because Jesus said, woe to anybody that makes any one of these little ones to stumble in believing in me. And we cause other people to stumble when we go around professing to be Christians, professing to be, you know, godly this and godly that. Yet we're, (laughs) when we go home, we're treating our spouses mean, treating our children mean, treating our parents mean, treating our brother and sister wrong. No, straighten up what the Holy Spirit said, straighten up. Don't let this word pass by you. Make correction. You want long life? Make correction. You want to see good? You want to have the good? Make correction. Next, let's look at don't be ignorant. Understand how seasons of judgment and consequences can hinder healing and answers to prayer. As we have studied, God wants us to know and believe his word and to listen to the Holy Spirit so that we can continually have and enjoy every good thing that we have because of Jesus. But what do you do when you have believed his word and you've been a good person, but it seems like you're living under every curse listed in Deuteronomy 28 verses 15 to 68? Have you ever been in a season, be it a period of weeks, months, or even years, where lying vanities abound in your health, in your finances, and in your relationships? Seasons where challenges seem to multiply on all sides, where it seems like your prayers are hindered and the healing and help that you prayed for seems just as far away as it would have been if you hadn't prayed at all. In those times, it's quite possible that you were in a season of judgment and consequences. Just as crimes in the physical world can carry death sentences or mandatory seasons of incarceration, spiritual crimes also carry death sentences where a person can be judged in the flesh causing the person to reap sickness in their physical body for a season or even die suddenly and prematurely, or a person can encounter seasons of judgment and consequences. But what is a season of judgment and consequence? Seasons of judgment and consequences are a fixed period of unchangeable, inescapable, negative effects that come as a result of violating spiritual law by participating in sin and disobedience, acting on spiritual law, where after hearing and hearing wrong teachings, traditions, or theories, or popular thoughts and cliches, we use our words to cause bad situations and dysfunctions and harm to come, or after failing to subdue the works of the devil or failing to heed the Holy Spirit, we fall into the detriment we should have been protected from, or 
after making unwise decisions, we can join ourselves to someone else's judgment and consequences. A free person with millions of dollars in the bank might have a butler to wait on them night and day and have immediate access to the finest things that money can buy. But if they were incarcerated for committing a crime, they would not be able to access any of those things until they were released from jail. During seasons of judgment and consequences, we can seem cut off from the full protection and power of God as prayers for healing, help, and for God to end the suffering can seem to go unanswered in spite of how much good we do or how much we go to church. Just as that incarcerated person can no longer partake of the benefits and provisions they would have been able to have as a free citizen, you cannot fully partake of the benefits of God's blessings when you are locked up in a season of judgment and consequences. Here are just a few examples of where God's people encounter consequences for making bad decisions and acting on spiritual law or judgment seasons for violating spiritual law or joining themselves to someone else's judgment and consequences. The Israelites had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and could not enter the promised land, not because they didn't know how to get there, but because their disobedience prevented God from being with them to conquer and possess the land. And you can find that in Numbers chapters 13 and 14. Now, because the Israelites behaved wickedly, they were oppressed by the Midianites for seven years. And that was found in Judges chapter 6, verse 1. Because the leaders and people of Judah refused to receive correction from the prophet Jeremiah, they were sentenced to 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And we see that in Jeremiah chapter 29. Because Paul previously persecuted the Christians, he suffered years of intense persecution and physical suffering and was eventually beheaded. And we see that in Acts chapter 7 verses 57 to 60, chapter 8 verses 1 to 3, chapter 9 verses 10 to 16, and 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 7 to 10. After Adam disobeyed God by listening to Lucifer, a spiritual being that was already condemned to death, He and all of mankind was joined to Lucifer's judgment, separation from God's spirit while on earth, and also having an eternity in hell. And we see the scripture reference for that in Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 17, Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 9, and Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. After God pronounced judgment on the Israelites, Moses likewise disobeyed God's instructions while he was with them in their season of judgment and joined himself to their consequences. He couldn't go into the promised land. And we see that in Numbers chapter 14, Numbers chapter 20, verses 7 to 12, and Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 23 to 29. After judgment had been pronounced on Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his family were warned to leave and not to look back on the destruction. Although they had gotten to safety, his wife decided to look back, and by so doing, she joined herself to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. She was turned to a pillar of salt, just like everyone else was when they were consumed by the fire and brimstone. We see that account in Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 to 29. God sent a young prophet to pronounce judgment on the people of Israel because of their wickedness. While in that land, the prophet disobeyed God's specific instructions and caused himself to be joined to the same judgment of that land. He was mauled by a lion and his remains wouldn't receive a respectable burial. And that's found in 1 Kings chapter 13 and also chapter 14 verses 10 to 13. The Israelites refused to heed God's warning and to accept God as their leader and demanded a king. And as a result, they suffered 42 years of unjust leadership under King Saul. 
And during his reign as the king of Israel, he slaughtered a group of people that the Israelites had sworn to protect. And that caused the Israelites to suffer through a famine for three years after Saul died. And that's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 21, and Acts 13, 21. Now, after having gone through all of those accounts, let's look a bit more closely at that last example as it gives a clear picture of how failing to heed God's warning leads to seasons of judgment and consequences that hinder our prayers for healing and help. 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1 says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord. Now, while David had committed wrongs and reaped judgment later in his life, this nationwide famine took place during the early years of David's reign. Now, at this time in his reign, he had not yet disobeyed God or mistreated anybody, unlike his predecessor Saul. In fact, David is the one whom God said was a man after his own heart. And we see that in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. Although David was a godly man and sought the Lord earnestly about this famine issue, David did not receive an answer to resolve this problem until three years after the famine began. No matter how much or how long he prayed during those first two years, nothing could be done to cause that famine to end any sooner. Now, again, think about that. We're talking about judgment consequences and how there's nothing you can do to change that season of consequences once you're in that season. What could have possibly caused the rain, provision, and prosperity that God promised him to be hindered? What could have possibly caused this godly man's prayers to be hindered? Now, during that third year, God did finally reveal what caused the famine. While David did not commit the wrong that caused the famine, he was an Israelite. He was part of the people who were united under the leadership of King Saul when he committed those wrongs. The land and the people in it bore the judgment consequences of Saul's actions, consequences that did not begin until after Saul died. You can read the rest of 1 Samuel chapter 12 to see how the problem ended up being resolved. And the Bible reminds us, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. And that's in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 11. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. And that's found in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Now, while a person or those they join themselves to can choose a bad opportunity or commit a wrong today, the consequences of that bad decision or offense may not be fully revealed until days, weeks, months, or even years later causing some to think that there was really nothing wrong with their actions or even that they got away with something. Sadly, just as we saw with David and countless others, when we fail to heed a warning about a bad opportunity or disobey God or purposely or accidentally join ourselves to someone else's consequences, it doesn't matter how long or how much we pray during the season of judgment and consequences as our prayers during those seasons can seem both powerless and ineffective. Why is that? Did God decide to forsake the people that he promised to protect and provide for? Not at all. God warned the Israelites that they would have hardship if they insisted on having a king like the other nations around them had, and even telling them that once hardship came, he would not be able to help them out of it. Again, look back at 1 Samuel chapter 8 for that. 
but they disregarded God's warning and not only endured hardship during Saul's reign, but suffered consequences for his actions after he died. Again, this example is how you can reap consequences because against the directions of the Holy Spirit, you join yourself to someone who's going to have consequences and problems later. God told them they didn't want a king. He said, don't have a king. Let me continue to lead you. And they were like, no, we want to be like everybody else. He was like, fine, you want to be like everybody else? You'll have consequences like everybody else. Again, that goes back to Psalm 82. You are supposed to be gods in this earth. You're not supposed to live and die like mere men. If God said, don't join yourself to this person, to this job, to this relationship, please, by all means, don't do it. Because once consequences come as a result, you can't pray your way out of that stuff. Now, with that understood, some bad decisions, transgressions, and sins do lead to final seasons of judgment and consequences, meaning it'll either result in a permanent removal of your former glory, your former position, or physical ability, or death, or both. Sadly, many of these kinds of final consequences are seen among people in the church today. How? Many of us would like to think of ourselves as good Christian folks who definitely qualify for all of God's blessings. However, one majorly overlooked way that we cause ourselves to reap temporary and even final seasons of judgment and consequences is by failing to judge others in righteousness. Again, look back at Psalm 82. We're supposed to fight for the oppressed and the needy. Think about this for a moment. When those that you knew or ministered to needed healing or help, Did you judge their situation in righteousness, fully believing and declaring that because their healing and help was already done, that all that needed to be done was for us to believe and speak that it's done? Or did you tell them, well, you know, God doesn't always heal everybody, or maybe you need to sow a seed fast or give some kind of special offering to get the hand of God to move. You might ask, how can saying things like that cause us to reap seasons of judgment and consequences? When you spend months and years telling others that God doesn't always heal or help everybody or that they still have to do something to get God to heal or help them, what are you doing? One, you're not telling them the truth, which causes them to go without whatever it was that they needed. Two, you're subconsciously building your own faith to believe that God doesn't always heal or help everybody or that you still need to do something to get God to heal or help you. Lastly, While you may have spent years or even decades working hard for the Lord, since you were okay with others not always having healing or help when they really needed it, you caused his power not to be at work for you when you really need it. And the scripture reference for those points are Matthew chapter 18 verses 1 to 7 and also verses 10 and 11, Romans 10, 17, James 2, 13, Matthew chapter 6 verses 14 to 15 and chapter 7 verses 1 and 2. With that understood, as much as it is up to you, always judge in righteousness, believing that no person or situation is beyond the mercy, healing, or help, and forgiveness of God that was already freely provided through Jesus. Not every season of judgment and consequence ends in death. Many times, those seasons are just temporary, and we just need to keep believing and speaking what the Word of God says until that season is over. The Bible tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's found in 1 John 1, 9. Galatians 6, verses 8 and 9 says, He who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. 
and let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Just as seasons of judgment and consequences can take a while to catch up to us and eventually find us after we've done wrong, when we choose to repent and believe and obey the word of God, even in the middle of that season, the good that we prayed for will likewise find us and be waiting for us on the other side of that season. It can be easy to give up during a season of judgment and consequences, as everything and everyone around you can try to make you believe that that situation will never ever change, that your best days are behind you and that God has forgotten all about you. But we understand now that those thoughts and words are just lying vanities. And the last verse that I just read in Jeremiah 29, 11, God spoke those words to the people of Judah through the prophet Jeremiah, not while they were sitting in the synagogue during an immensely prosperous time in their lives. He spoke those words while they were held captive in Babylon during their 70 year season of judgment and consequences. Let's look at the rest of that message to see what else God told them. Now, these are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive to the priests, the prophets, and all those whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to those who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you have caused to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, After seventy years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me, When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places of which I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. And that's found in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1, and also verses 4 to 14. Now, while it was never God's will or desire for them to be taken captive in the first place, in that passage, God wanted them to know two things. One, he wanted to remind them that even though they messed up and were now suffering the consequences for their disobedience, he still had good plan for them on the other side of that jail term. He did not want them to give up and die in that place. He told them to live, to marry, and to multiply because he wanted to have somebody to save, heal, help, and protect when that season of bondage ended. Likewise, when we find ourselves in jail seasons, God speaks to us through the Holy Spirit reminding us that even in that season of judgment and consequences, not to give up, not to die, and to continue to believe and speak his word, as all of the good that we have been praying for is right there on the other side of that season. Secondly, 
God also reminded them to keep their hands clean by remembering to pray for the place that they had been carried off to so that he could have a way in to help the leaders to do right. And he warned them not to listen to the false prophets around them. Why? Even though you can be in a season of judgment and consequences, it's quite possible to cause yourself to be in an even worse state when you disobey God or make more bad decisions in that season. So keep your hands clean. Now, as we have covered and will continue to cover throughout the rest of this course, if we have the authority to pray about a matter where it concerns us or those that we have authority over or have been requested to pray in a situation, and we have believed and prayed according to his word, and we have kept ourselves from sin and disobedience, our prayers should always be 100% successful. We should never be passive about not receiving what we prayed for. If you don't have peace about what you prayed for or the healing and help that you earnestly prayed for seems hindered or held up, stop and pray. Stop and ask God to reveal what could be hindering the healing and answers that you prayed for. Ask him to reveal whether or not you're in a season of judgment and consequences and what caused you to be there in the first place so that you can make whatever corrections are necessary and never be in that situation ever again. If he tells you that you just need to keep believing, then just keep believing. But if he reveals that you are in fact in a season of judgment and consequences, stop and repent and make whatever corrections are necessary. While that season may be challenging, don't give up and die there. No one believe that there is an expiration date for that season. And if you'll believe it, God will also cause you to come out far better than you or anybody else ever thought was possible. Please understand. Seasons of judgment and consequences are real and can cause the power of God to not be at work when you speak and pray for yourself and your family. As we have continued to study throughout this chapter, it is not necessary for us to remain as ignorant fools and be afflicted. Whether you are or were ignorant like the mobs that harmed Jesus and Stephen or warned over time to make correction like the Israelites or even past the point of avoiding major consequences like the religious leaders and Paul, I urge you to repent today and make whatever corrections that are necessary so that you can always have God's good at work in your life. Amen. All right. So this by far has been the longest podcast episode that we've done, but it was necessary to put all this information together because one area that majorly hinders our prayers centers around forgiveness unforgiveness, hard-heartedness, bitterness, and not realizing where our actions can cause us to end up in seasons of judgment and consequences. All of those things can hinder our prayers. We don't want our prayers for anything to be hindered, whether it's a prayer for a new bike, prayer for a new home, or prayer for healing or restoration in a relationship. God wants our prayers to be effective. That's why he told us to pray in the first place. Amen. Again, I hope you're enjoying the podcast and the material so far. If you have any comments, questions, or positive feedback about the material, or if you have a testimony that you'd like to share, you can visit us online. Send us an email at contact at studywithcmartin.com. You can message us on Instagram and Facebook at studywithcmartin. You can leave us an audio message at anchor.fm forward slash studywithcmartin. Or you can fill out the contact form on the studywithcmartin.com website. Thanks again for joining me. Again, I have been your host, Shonda Martin. Until next time, 
Keep reading the word, keep studying the word, believing the word, make whatever corrections the Holy Spirit draws to your attention. And know that if you have prayed, God heard you. And if God heard you, know, believe, and remember that you do have what you pray for. Amen. Have a great week in Jesus' name.